Welcome to another episode of the Erectile Dysfunction Radio Podcast. Today we are joined by Dr. David Silver. Dr. Silver is the Director of the Division of Urology and the Chief of Urologic Oncology, Department of Surgery at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. He has a private practice specializing in urologic oncology and oncologic surgery. Dr. Silver completed his residencies in surgery and urology at Maimonides and his fellowship at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. Today we want to get an overview of urologic cancers and explore the impact on sexual function and sexual dysfunction. Before we get started, though, can you tell us a little bit about your practice? Well, you've been off an enormous topic uh, by talking about urologic cancers um, because A, they're common and um, B, any part of the, uh, of the body can get cancer and, you know, the, 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 the netherworld uh, or the lower part of the body is not an exception. Uh, you know, every man has a prostate and uh, eventually almost all of them will end up with prostate cancer. Uh, penis cancer is not common in this country, but it's endemic elsewhere. Testicular cancer is a relatively uncommon malignancy, uh, but because the treatment is very well-defined, uh, studies are, have really been uh, very precise about identifying what works and what doesn't. The survival is almost 100% uh, for testicular cancer, and bladder cancer is unfortunately common because people smoke. Uh, and so it's really a, a fairly broad topic. To get to this, uh, it's, let's see, four years of college, four years of medical school, two years of general surgery, four years of urology, one of which is a year of research, and then two years of fellowship. And so, yes, I've trained basically forever. Okay. So around how old were you when you were done all of that and, and I guess actually seeing patients under a full urologic, urologic oncologist certification or accreditation? Oh, my God. Mid-30s. You know, you have to be in practice for two years. Uh, before the board will even accept your application. And so to get board certified is an additional two years on top of what I just said. Okay, so board certification comes two years after all of that. That's correct. After all that training, then you got to get board certified. Right, and that that includes uh, tests, correct? That's part of the board certification? Yeah, the board process uh, is, changes all the time, but when I was doing it, it required uh, submission of a case log, obviously documentation of training, uh, and then a written and an oral certifying examination. Okay, so there's a lot that goes into this. Yeah, it doesn't last forever either. Time limited, uh, time unlimited board certificates are a thing of the past. We all have to recertify every 10 years. Wow. Okay, so <laughs> that, that exam, however it changes, is something that you have to keep up to date with. It is. You're absolutely required to keep up to date. And uh, the process has become uh, a bit more involved. Uh, it used to be you would, there was a high stakes exam and you would sit for the one exam and then that was it. You were good for the next 10 years. And now they want continuous submission of data and uh, practice pattern and profiles and review, review 360 reviews from patients, from, uh, from um, administration, from nursing, from your students, you know, and from, uh, and from senior, uh, senior physicians. And uh, I, I think it's actually good. You know, even though we have to pay for it every year, I, I really think it's actually good. It really maintains um, quality uh, in as much as people are sort of required to learn what's what's coming up and what's next. Coming back to your practice, I think you mentioned testicular cancer, penile cancer, bladder cancer, and prostate cancer. Are there any other cancers that are relevant to urology? 
Absolutely. So moving up the urinary tract is ureteral cancer. The ureter is the tube that connects the kidneys to the bladder. Kidney cancer, of course, there are different forms. Adrenal cancer, which are uh, cancer of the glands that are next to the kidney are not really part of the urinary tract. They're really more part of the nervous system. But since they live in the same general area, urologists deal with them. Retroperitoneal sarcomas, which are tumors that arise from the tissue surrounding the kidneys and surrounding the, uh, the uh, abdominal organs. Uh, and sometimes some salvage surgery as well or other adjacent malignancies like colorectal cancer or gynecologic malignancies. Okay. So there's, there's a lot of ground. I told you. Yes, it's a lot of ground. I don't know if we're going to be able to cover all of those. What are the most common urologic cancers? Well, it would have to be prostate cancer. Uh, you know, every man's got a prostate and, um, by 70, half a men have prostate cancer on autopsy studies. By 90, almost everybody has prostate cancer. Uh, but it's actually interesting that um, very few people at 90 are going to die from prostate cancer. The vast majority of them are going to die from something else because they are so old and have accumulated so many other comorbidities or things that are trying to kill them first that uh, that's, that's usually the cause of death. It's usually not prostate cancer. Um, in younger men, obviously, uh, it's more of a problem because they don't have many comorbidities and have a much longer time to live. And the interesting thing about dealing with prostate cancer and studying prostate cancer is that it's the slowest growing tumor that we know of. And you can tell this because of the way the survivals are measured. Uh, testicular cancer is measured in two years and five years. Colon cancer is measured in five years. Breast cancer is measured in five years. Prostate cancer survivals are measured in 10 and 15 years. Even if you do nothing, a lot of patients with prostate cancer are going to be alive in 10 years without any problems from the tumor. Yeah. And that by far would be the most common if it gets, you know, up to, you know, men in their nineties are almost guaranteed. They're going to have some you know, presentation of this, but again, many of these men will not die from the prostate cancer. They will die with the prostate cancer. Something else will get them. Now they might not even present with it. They might not have any symptoms at all, but, you know, when, and, and people are shocked when I tell them this, uh, but if there's a 90-year-old guy in my office, I look at the guy, and I, I don't need to know anything else. You probably have prostate cancer. Is it going to kill you? Very unlikely. And so the trick in, in treating older patients is not to find cancer, because if you look, you're, you're, you're almost always going to find it. The trick is to find the cancers that are aggressive and are going to be likely to become a problem within their life expectancy based on their comorbidities, family history, and so forth. And, and the challenge is exactly opposite in younger patients. You know, in younger men, the challenge is to, is to find any prostate cancer, because those guys have such a prolonged uh, life expectancy mm -hmm. that any tumor, almost any tumor, uh, is likely to become a problem within their lifetimes. Got it. Now, when it comes to uh, testicular cancer, um, this is definitely something that makes many men, you know, squirmish when they when they when they when they think about it. So, how common is testicular cancer? It's really not. There are only a few hundred cases of testicular cancer in the country every year, uh, but because it's not that common a disease. Um, it's actually fairly well studied because most of these in the past have been treated at major centers. And because there aren't that many of them, it's fairly straightforward to organize studies around them. Uh, very similar to uh, rhabdomyosarcoma or Wilms tumor and some, some of the other uh, malignancies. Um, and there have been working groups that are, that are national and international to try to define what the best treatment is. And it turns out that um, testicular cancer is, is almost curable the vast majority of the time. And that, that's, I'm an oncologist. I don't say cure lightly. You know, cure means that we get rid of the disease durably and people go on to live a long, normal life afterwards, which is important because there's a bimodal age distribution for testicular cancer. A lot of the patients are young men. 
men in their teens, 20s, and early 30s. And it sort of peaks in the, in the late 20s and then falls off after that. And then there's a second uh, peak in around age mid-60s. But you're saying that this is a, a cancer that still is rare? It's not a common cancer? Not that common, only a few hundred a year in this country. But, but it, is, it is, like I say, virtually curable. And I, I can't say that to a lot of people, to a lot of people, you know, yeah. some of the things that we manage are not curable. They're manageable, you know, like low, low, uh, low stage, uh, low grade bladder cancer. Those almost always relapse. People have, have to go for constant follow-ups and checkups. Testicular cancer, when you beat it, it's done. The major message when I see a young man with testicular cancer, because these guys, these guys are all young. There's some of them who are just starting families, you know, where they come up with their parents who are panicked that the, that the kid's going to die on them. And, and, the, the, and, and the very first thing I tell them is that testicular cancer, you're going to live. This is a virtually curable problem. And before they leave the office, the last thing I asked them is, what's the first thing I said to you when you came in here? That's right. You're going to live. Okay. If they don't remember anything else, they need to remember that. Well, that's, that's the kind of thing people want to hear from their oncologist. Mm-hmm. So true. definitely. Definitely appreciate that. Now, you mentioned that penile cancer is not very common in this country, but it is more common in other countries. Does that have something to do with rates of circumcision? Absolutely. It is endemic in South America, uh, where circumcision rates are low, and it is virtually unheard of in Israel, where uh, almost everybody, uh, Jews and Muslims, are circumcised. Interesting. And and can you explain a little bit to our listeners what what that difference maker is, how does that penile cancer develop? It's a terrific question. I don't know the answer to that. You know, there's been a lot of research in that to try to figure out exactly what the oncogenic process is. And nobody's got the answer to this. In other words, you're saying that there is a, a clear causality, but it's unclear what the pathophysiology is of the development of penile cancer and the uncircumcised. That's correct. The thought process is it has something to do with retained cells uh, that are shed by the, uh, the normal skin of the penis that then degenerate and they're caught behind the prepuce and uh, that's called smegma, that, that, um, uh, that, that those dead retained cells and that somehow uh, that becomes oncogenic. Nobody really understands the process. There's also some thought that it might be virally mediated. And there are some types of penis cancer that uh, are virally uh, mediated, usually by, um, by HPV. Um, but uh, th- those, are, those are actually the minority. Okay. And um, what is the survival rate? As you mentioned that, you know, prostate is slow moving. Uh, oftentimes there's, you know, a lot of men do well with that. Testicular is curable, which is a you know fascinating or, or it's a fantastic word to hear around cancer. Mm-hmm. What about penile? So penile cancer, it kind of depends upon what the stage is at diagnosis. Um, and this is true for almost every cancer. Uh, with the possible exception of testicular cancer, or even high-stage disease is essentially curable. Uh, for penis cancer, if it's confined to the penis um, and appropriately treated early, then the survival is excellent. Once there's lymph node spread, those numbers go down by, by half. And when it's disseminated, um, there's no good chemotherapy and there are no survivors. Um, you know, the, the, the problem with penis cancer diagnosis is that men just tend to ignore it. I got this thing on my penis. How long you have that? Oh, about eight years. Really? Did you come to see a doctor? Nah, I didn't think it was anything. You know, people really do tend to ignore it. And, and it's less so for testicular cancer because uh, it's interesting, but a lot of times testicular cancer is found by the partner, right? Because, you know, they're, 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 there's a little foreplay going on and, and, and uh, the partner says, oh, what's this? And the guy's like, nah, isn't it great? It's bigger than it used to be. <laughs> you know? And, and, and it's, it's completely misinterpreted. Uh, but with penis cancer, there's a real... Um, 
uh, sort of a stigma attached to it. Yeah. And, and, and to that end, is this something which is externally detectable? Many times. Yes. Um, sometimes if there's a really bad phimosis, which is a contracture of the skin at the tip of the penis so that the skin can't be pulled back to see the actual, uh, the actual head of the penis or the glands, uh, sometimes it's hidden and it's a cult and, and, and somebody wouldn't see it, but the vast majority of the time it's, it's, um, at least in, in my experience, it's been relatively obvious. Dr. Shiva, the last cancer that you mentioned that I want to explore a little bit more about, because I think this could have a direct impact on sexual function is the urethra or urethral cancer. Can you describe a little bit about that? I, I mean, from what I know about my own body, um, the urethra is not a very um, wide port. Now, I know that it may extend back into the body, um, mm-hmm. but it, it, it's a pretty narrow band, correct? So the urethra drains the bladder and comes all the way out to the penis. And it, it, it um, at, when it's generated, it's generated by folding up a couple of different areas of tissue in the embryo to make the urethra. It's not all made out of the same stuff. And so the proximal part of it, the first part of it that's right up near the bladder is actually generated by tissue near the bladder. And, this, and the lining of that is very similar to the cells of the bladder. And the distal part, the part all the way at the end, is generated uh, from from the same type of tissue that made up the, uh, the the penis and the skin of the penis, and so those cells are completely different. Um, this is a rare tumor to begin with, and there are multiple subtypes based on the location. Um, and again, these, this is one of the things where where the stage of presentation makes an enormous difference. It's very hard to pick up uh, when it's early. Uh, and when it's late, uh, it used to be considered absolutely incurable. Now, there's there, with combination treatment, including uh, uh, chemotherapy, radiation, and surgery, uh, some penis, some urethral cancers are curable. And you mentioned that 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 the cells are, are they're very similar to or are actual bladder cells or penile cells. Um, does that mean that men who develop bladder cancer are at higher risk for developing? urethral cancer in that region of the urethra or men who have developed penile cancer, are they at higher risk for developing urethral cancer as well in the area closer to, you know, the tip of the penis? That is a terrific and somewhat nuanced question. So, so for people with distal um, urethral tumors, uh, the ones that are more similar to the outside of the penis, the answer is no. Once you remove that, there isn't any risk, any increased risk to the rest of the penis. For people who have had bladder cancer, the um, the rate of urethral cancer is is actually not insignificant, and it's 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 sort of an interesting biology because um, let's say somebody has their bladder taken out for for bladder cancer, which should solve the problem, right? Um, if you leave the urethral stump closed off then the risk of having a, a urethral cancer in that stump related to the bladder cancer is actually higher than if you were to build a new bladder inside or a neobladder and connect that to the urethra and have urine flowing through it. doesn't make any sense, right? But biologically, it, it, it's, it's true. Yeah, so, so it sounds like maybe at, some, at some day there will be an explanation. <laughs> I don't have a good explanation for this. I mean, you know, we used to think that it was a, an issue of detection, you know, because when there was a urethral stump, you wouldn't do the any of the uh, urethral wash cytologies, and we didn't know, and so the rate of detection would be higher. But it turns out that even if you 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 do surveillance of the urethral remnant, um, the, the rate is still is still low, higher in the stump than it is if you've got a, a neobladder connected. It's very interesting. Um, 
Okay, so so I'm I'm sure there's no end to um, what we could talk about just around the cancer. We do want to kind of bring this um, back towards sexual dysfunction. So as I'm thinking about, again, penile cancer, urethral cancer, testicular cancer, you know, these are all regions that are, um, you know, part and parcel of sexual function. Mm -hmm. Do any of these cancers themselves, not the treatments, but the cancers themselves interfere with sexual function? So the answer to that question is sometimes. Um, urethral cancer itself, um, you know, does there, there's not a lot of data on whether it interferes with sexual function or not. It's usually in older uh, people. Um, it's a rare tumor, and so I'm not really going to be able to make much comment about that. I can tell you that some of the penis cancers do interfere with sexual function because they're, they're, they're large, frankly. And uh, then, and they can cause problems with uh, with the erections, uh, depending upon the location. Um, prostate cancer, in and of itself, generally does not cause problems with uh, with sexual function. So, sexual symptoms, uh, apart from perhaps blood in the ejaculate, uh, aren't really a, a a symptom of of prostate cancer. Bladder cancer uh, rarely causes symptoms, causes sexual symptoms, but the treatments can have, uh, of all these diseases, can have profound effects on sexual function. Testicular cancer doesn't really affect sexual function most of the time, but it does affect fertility in a, in a large way. In other words, the, the, the mechanics of sex will work with Correct. testicular cancer, uh, but there may be you know, impact on, I guess, sperm production. Is that Yes. It, it turns out, interestingly, that although um, mo- most of the time a single testis is affected, you know, to have both testicles affected by cancer simultaneously is vanishingly rare. I've actually never seen it. Um, but the, the opposite testis is somehow affected to some degree. So about 40% of patients who have a unilateral or one-sided testicular cancer actually have a decrease in semen quality compared to, uh, to, to otherwise normal men. And that's also another thing that's not well understood. There's there's clearly some hormonal or or um, other non-contiguous influence, uh, but that hasn't really been well worked out yet either. For many people, when they hear of a cancer diagnosis or they suspect that they have cancer, there could be some very profound psychological impacts leading to sexual dysfunction. In your practice, is that something that you see or that you hear uh, men reporting? hugely common. There's immense anxiety associated with the diagnosis of cancer, any kind of cancer. Um, even, even, not a di- even patients who are not yet diagnosed with cancer, uh, people with elevated PSAs, you know, uh, prostate-specific antigen tests that may indicate they have an enlarged prostate or prostate cancer or prostatitis. You know, even those men come in complaining that, oh, you know, uh, it used to work really well, but now for the past couple of weeks since I got my PSA, I think things are terrible. And, and, and you know, it, it's a urologic joke. The PSA is not prostate-specific antigen. It also stands for patient-specific anxiety because people are just so nervous about their PSAs. And, 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 and it's a common thing. You know, people get a slightly elevated PSA and they go to the, meet their buddies at the pool and the guy says, hey, what's your PSA? My PSA is five. Oh, my PSA is three. You've got to see my urologist. <laughs> and there's this huge, uh, we've done a really good job pushing PSAs on people and PSA screening to the point that even just an elevated PSA makes people very anxious. But any diagnosis of cancer is tremendously anxiety provoking. Some of the treatments, um, as you know, 
cause a lot of uh, anxiety associated with them uh, and can cause physical uh, dysfunction. To me, the most interesting group of, of patients in this regard are uh, patients with low volume, low stage prostate cancer, whom we no longer really treat. You know, my professional society says that for, for low risk or favorable risk prostate cancer, you're not even supposed to treat it because we know that it doesn't kill people. Mm-hmm. But and, and surveillance is, is supposed to be the first line treatment you know, for most of these patients, because we know it's not going to kill them. Um, but the number of patients on surveillance who will fall off of surveillance because of anxiety about, oh, my God, I got the big C and I'm not doing anything about it. I'm going to die is tremendous. Only about 4% of those patients per year require treatment because they either have progression in greater progression in, in, uh, in tumor volume. But almost 30 to 50% of patients across the board on surveillance for prostate cancer will fall off at some point because they're just anxious. And, and a, lot of, a, lot of the, a lot of that plays into the rest of their lives as well. And that includes sexual dysfunctions. It's, it's very, very interesting. Yeah. And, 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 you know, it will be interesting to look at, and I, I don't know if this has been uh, studied, but as we're talking here, I kind of wonder if, because again, cancer forms all over the body and it has a psychological impact for many people. Wonder if there's a discrepancy between urologic cancers, which are directly associated with or correlated with the sexual function process, as opposed to cancer in other regions of the body. Um, I don't know if anybody has done that research, certainly something that I, you know, after this conversation, we'll be looking into a little bit further. Um, if that has a specific, um, uh, psychological impact, um, on sexual function that is at a higher rate as compared to cancers in other regions of the body. Now, are there ways to, um, mitigate the impact of uh, negative uh, sexual function outcomes when it comes to treating some of these cancers? So for each cancer, it's a little bit different. And again, it's, it's a little bit nuanced uh, according to, uh, uh, to the patient, according to their pre-existing uh, functional status. Uh, which, which you know, almost almost all men overestimate, and so uh, you know, a patient. I, my, my professional society says that you're supposed to ask patients with prostate cancer. I'll use prostate cancer as an example because there are really a lot of guidelines associated with it. And so, in the initial history, you're supposed to ask patients about their urinary symptoms. That's one of the things that can affect, and ask patients about their sexual function. And so, patients come in with their partners, right? And so, uh, you know, I asked this question. Uh, sorry, I asked you this, but you know, I, I, I got to know something about your sexual function because you know a lot of the treatments have sexual side effects. And the guy will look at me and, and, and then look at her and say, and, and not say anything. And, and so I almost always turn to her or turn to him, if that's the partner and say, well, what do you think? How, how, how is he compared to how he was, you know, 20 years ago when y'all first met? <laughs> and, 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 and it's a light moment in the office visit, but it does establish a, a baseline uh, for, for a very serious topic. Um, because people are, you know, it's, it's always at the very end of the conversation when it, at a doctor's visit where a guy throws out, oh, yeah, by the way, uh, can I get some of those pills? And, and, and uh, this brings it right out to the front to make sure that people are upfront about it. And it helps to set the expectation for what's going to happen later on. And so for men who have good sexual function to begin with, if a man is about 65, I can tell you that half of those guys, according to the literature, are going to have trouble after a prostatectomy. 40% of them are going to have trouble after, after radiation. 20% of them are going to have trouble after a focal treatment, like ablation uh, with either high-intensity focus ultrasound or cryoablation. Um, and, and some of them will still have trouble even if they go on to surveillance. Yeah. 
And so it's really important to have a baseline with these patients. Yeah. So that's for prostate cancer. Now, now mm-hmm. I know we haven't gotten into the specifics like of the variations of treatment um, and, or if there is any variation when it comes to penile cancers or testicular cancer um, or whatnot, um, would there be any associated sexual dysfunction um, with those treatments? I, I, we've covered mm-hmm. in a previous podcast the specifics um, around a prostatectomy and mm-hmm. how delicate the nerves that kind of line right around or, or run right against uh, the prostate are and how long it takes for them to repair. Now, I don't know where else those nerves go. Maybe you can enlighten our listeners um, as to what the impact is of other treat other uh, cancer treatments. So uh, let's go back to your two examples, testicular cancer and penis cancer. For testicular cancer, um, one of the things that's important uh, to sexual functions to have an appropriate hormonal milieu with adequate uh, testosterone, which helps to uh, helps um, uh, with desire, um, and that also affects function. Um, there's actually enough testosterone produced by a single testicle to to give normal uh, levels of, of desire and normal uh, a normal level of sexual function. Uh, and so, testicular cancer, uh, if it affects one testicle, as it almost always does, uh, is usually in and of itself not an issue with sexual function. Penis cancer, on the other hand, because the treatment of the primary tumor necessarily involves removing that portion of the penis that's got the tumor on it, that has profound implications on sexual function. And so, you know, the industry standard used to be, and all the old textbooks say this, that no matter where the penis cancer is, uh, whether it's on the shaft or whether it's on the tip of the penis, uh, if you remove it with a two centimeter margin from the tumor back, then that has basically 100% effectiveness in solving the, uh, the problem where it started. The problem with this, of course, is that everyone's built a little bit differently. And you know, to, uh, a, a, a distal amputation or removing just the tip of the penis and one guy with a two centimeter margin uh, is going to leave him with enough of a stump to stand to urinate, but uh, he won't be able to really, uh, to really penetrate. Whereas in uh, other uh, more, shall we say, endowed men, um, you know, that same amount of tissue removal is going to leave him with almost no sexual side effects. Now, now that's, that's just in terms of being able to penetrate. Uh, remember that the, the glands at the tip of the penis, of course, is full of nerve endings. And, um, you know, that's uh, part of arousal. And arousal is sometimes more difficult. Uh, and then who have had some portion of the penis amputated. And so for lower grade, very distal disease, now the treatment is, has turned completely away from amputation and more towards organ conservation or, or sparing as much of the tissue of the penis as possible. And so there is something called Mohs surgery, which is micro, micrographic surgery, where the resection of the tumor is done, in, is done incrementally. A portion is removed, the piece is mapped, sent for pathology immediately, any place where there's additional uh, tumor that needs to be removed, just that location is removed, mapped, and the process is repeated until there is no tumor left. And that preserves layer by layer as much tissue as possible. Yeah. So to that end, I was wondering, does a penile tumor or penis tumor, does it grow into the corpus cavernosa? Absolutely. Absolutely. Most of these start on the surface of the penis. So they're squamous cell carcinomas and they start on the surface of the penis. Um, even the verrucous ones that come from, uh, from HPV uh, start on the surface of the penis and burrow their way in. 
And uh, the risk of lymph node metastasis and uh, distant spread is directly related to the degree of invasion. Got it. So, so the sexual dysfunction um, theoretically would also be dependent on how deep into the corpus cavernosa this is penetrated? So in my experience, generally not. Uh, okay. I don't think that depth has been, I don't think that study has actually been done. Um, but uh, in general, uh, even people who have corpus cavernosa involvement um, do report the same degree of, of sexual dysfunction. Same degree. So, so you think that that yeah. doesn't have any impact? They still have erections. Yeah. And how, so, so the blood just re like, do the, do the vessels grow around the part that's been impacted or removed or like, how does that work? No, the tumor grows in from the skin through the, uh, the, uh, the tunic albuginia, which is the the fibrous sheath surrounding the the corpora and then into the corpora. And as long as there isn't really an associated leak of blood um, through the tumor and into the uh, veins draining of the penis, then there's no uh, loss of the ability to have a normal erection. How does sexual counseling for these cancers and cancer treatments, like how does that look or how does that take place in the broader context of uh, patient education and, um, you know, informing patients about treatments and, and the potential impact? So we have a cancer center and there is a uh, sexual counselor uh, associated with it. We have every level of counseling uh, and sexual is part of it. I got to tell you, most people in the very beginning are, are less concerned about function than they are about life expectancy. And this is a consistent theme when, when, uh, you know, when presented with a new diagnosis of cancer, all I want to know is, am I going to live to get married? Am I going to see my grandchildren, you know, and the sexual stuff? Don't worry about that. But it's fairly important um, for patients not to rush into any treatment until they understand the uh, side, potential side effects and alternatives that may provide um, better or different out- sexual and other outcomes. Uh, I mean, again, you know, this is relevant to prostate cancer, but it's also relevant to, uh, to other treatments as well, to other, to other diseases as well. Um, for example, with bladder cancer, um, bladder preservation as opposed to removing the bladder from muscle invasive bladder cancer is associated with far better sexual function than removing the bladder. Uh, and while the knee-jerk reaction for many patients is, oh my God, just get this bladder out of me. I don't care what happens to me afterwards. In the long run, it might not necessarily be the right answer. And so it's really critically important for patients to bring somebody with them to the appointment who can listen a little more carefully and doesn't have have alarm bells ringing in their head every time you say something to them. You know, we as human beings are, are, are wired with a hierarchy of needs. And, and it is somewhat of a parallel to how we talk about, you know, psychogenic erectile dysfunction, which is mm-hmm. if you are anxious, that's your body's, you know, your body goes into a mode of trying to protect itself and preserve and blood flows, you know, to your, your primary organs, your penis, not being one of them. Um, and that is also the way we think, which is survival you know, above everything else. So when we hear cancer, it's do anything and everything you can to get that cancer as far away as possible. Even if you resect half of my body, just get it out. And you know, it's important for people to kind of slow down and recognize that there's a, a, a broader picture of quality of life post these treatments that certainly should be taken into consideration. So here's what I tell patients. I tell them that, uh, you know, what's your goal? The goal in cancer treatment is death of other causes. 
it may not be necessary to kill every cancer cell to achieve that goal. And so this, you know, 60-year-old idea that extirpation is the goal might not necessarily be true for you. And it's and and when you think about it in those terms, it sort of gets people to uh, to realize, well, you know, I am going to have a life after this, and I kind of like to look forward to what that life might be like. And I, I tell people all the time, decisional regret is a an enormous factor uh, in in. There's a huge literature on this in, in prostate and in other cancers. And you know, the last thing I want is a guy sitting across the desk from me ten years from now saying, "Oh man, I should have done the other thing." <laughs> so it, it, it's never good for somebody to rush into any treatment. Yeah. Um, the, the, the good part about this is that for most cancers, it's, it's not an emergency. And it, it bothers me when, when people come, they say, oh, my doctor said I, I have to do this immediately. Well, no, sit down, think about this, you know, decide what your goals are, go home, talk to your family, come back, write down your questions. I'm happy to talk to you about this. If sexual function is a big deal, let's talk about it. This is what the, this is something important to you. This is a, a, a relevant value to your care. Yeah. And I mean, it's, you know, that patient angst and anxiety about just get it out of me, do whatever you can. I think it's very common. I, I mean, I, I can definitely understand, um, you know, how that, that is a big driving factor for many people. Uh, but at the same time, you know, taking just a couple days, like you said, there, to my knowledge, things don't progress that aggressively over a couple of days or even weeks, generally speaking. Certainly if your oncologist has seen the scans and sees what's going on, when they say you can take a couple of days or weeks to kind of think this through or figure out which you know, treatment approach is most appropriate for you, they mean it. It's really okay to take that time and think through all the implications. I think that's absolutely true. You know, you know um, everybody wants to know, am I gonna die? And the answer is, yeah, we're all gonna die, but not tomorrow. Next week doesn't look good either. Can appreciate that. Well, Dr. Silver, this has been you know, so informative, uh, both for myself. I'm sure our listeners are going to benefit from hearing about this. I know there's a lot of emphasis on prostate cancer and for good reason, because it seems to be the most common cancer in the urology family. And I think what um, was shared with me is that it's the second most common cancer for men um, after lung, if I think that was maybe what was after lung. That's after but just hearing about these other cancers, be aware that it's highly unlikely, they are rare, and there are many good treatments out there. Certainly if men suspect that something is going on, within reason, go to your doctor, get it checked out, and get ahead of it earlier rather than later. And this really should not have broad, um, long-lasting effects on sexual function. Um, most of that is probably driven by the anxiety of the cancer diagnosis much more than it is of the cancer or of the long-term effects of the treatment. Is that, is that an accurate summary? I think that's relatively accurate. You know, people are afraid. They're afraid of what they don't know. Um, you know, am I going to die? What's going to happen to me? And they're also afraid of what they heard, what cancer was like 40 years ago. There's a lot of cultural baggage that people bring with them when they talk about cancer. And so the, the real message that people should take home about cancer is that uh, many, this is not 40 years ago, all right? Many of these tumors are survivable with a good quality of life and a normal life expectancy. So don't be afraid. Come on in. Let's talk about it. Okay. And I appreciate that. It's relieving for me to hear. I hope it's relieving to our listeners as well. And again, thank you very much for your time. We really appreciate that and can't wait to get this episode out. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. 
Thanks for listening to the Erectile Dysfunction Radio Podcast. For more information on today's topic, please visit ErectionIQ.com. That's ErectionIQ.com.